Uh, we're going to be in chapters 10 and 11. Uh, hopefully we can get through both of those because I, I think they, they go together as well. We're trying to take these things in sections as they come. So where we're at, you know, if you remember all the way back in chapter four and five, we had this throne room scene and there's this scroll and the only one who's able to open it is the slaughtered lamb, you know, this, this uh, central image for Jesus yeah, yeah, yeah. and his self-sacrifice. And so then uh, with the breaking of the seven seals on this scroll uh, and then the sounding of the seven trumpets, although we've only got six so far um, because you get six and then you get a break and then you get seven. So uh, tonight is the break between the six and seven trumpet. Uh, but it's okay. Kind of keeps going back to that scroll and uh, we haven't gotten what's in the scroll yet, right? Um, and, but what we saw on the way there are all these descriptions of judgment or, or divine punishment. Uh, and what we saw last week is the result of all that was not repentance, right? People didn't um, change their ways, change their hearts uh, when, when all these things happened to them. And so, again, if, if I think one of the big questions of the book is what is God doing about evil and injustice, right? They were very clearly facing that in the first century Roman empire and Christians throughout history have asked this question for different reasons. Um, so how is God going to address these issues of injustice and evil? And what, what is God hoping to achieve with it? And I think what we saw last week, at least the way I understand it, is that punishment alone doesn't fully achieve God's goal of, of repentance for getting people to recognize the error, error of their ways. Um, so uh, we're going to we're kind of picking up in, in the middle of that scene. Right? That's where we're left. And we're actually going to get back to the open scroll here in chapter 10. So I'll read uh, <coughs> verses one, uh, one to seven, chapter 10. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He held a little scroll open in his hand, setting his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. He gave a great shout, like a lion roaring. And when he shouted, the seven thunders sounded. When the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what's in it, and the sea and what's in it. There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is to blow his trumpet, the mystery of God will be fulfilled as he announced to his servants, the prophets. All right, so uh, this angel seems really important and he gets a lot of description, but he's really just a messenger. And that's what the word angel actually means. Uh, but he's carrying the scroll, so that's that's what's important here. Uh, one of the really interesting things is we get these seven thunders that sound, and apparently there's there was a message with it, and John says he was about to write it down, and a voice from heaven, presumably God, says, um, no, don't, don't write that down. Um, and again, that's one of those things that seems really strange, uh, and I, the way I understand it, at least, is the idea that even though this is a book, it's literally called Revelation, we don't know everything that is happening, uh, you know, we don't see everything that's going on behind the scenes, and we don't understand everything that's going to unfold through this, so maybe it's pointing towards that, uh, uh, that there's, there's still some unknowns through all of this, uh, but the, the focus here is on the scroll that this angel is carrying, and uh, many think, and I think you can make the case, this is that unsealed scroll 
uh, that was introduced back in chapter five, right? We've had all seven seals broken on it, so right? now it can be Maybe read. Is that? Oh, okay. Um, and so, you know, it, it's there's like eight references to it back in chapter five, and then nothing, and now we get five more references to a scroll. So it seems like they would tie together. And because again, the idea, right, because Jesus, the slaughtered lamb, is the one who's able to open it. Um, he's the one who reveals God's great mystery. That's the word that's used there in, in verse seven, right? Um, the mystery of God will be fulfilled um, in, in these days. And I think that's uh, a good place to start uh, as we're thinking about what, what is being communicated here and, and what's not. Uh, what do you think of when you hear the word mystery? What does that imply to you? Or how do we usually use that, that word? What's, Unknown. what do you think of? What hmm? Unknown. Unknown, okay. And so uh, what are we supposed to do with a mystery? Solve it. Okay, it's all right. You find the clues. Uh, I mean, plenty of people probably like mystery sort of shows. I mean, how many are there where it's, you know, it starts with a murder or some crime, and then it's just 45 minutes or an hour to figure out who done it, right? It's kind of nice to be able to figure these things out and, and just get an answer to the mystery by the end of, you know, your, your TV show, whatever it is. What else? Uh, anything else you think of with mystery? Does that sound like uh, how it's being talked about here? There's just evidence and we gotta, we piece it together and then everything is solved and we understand it all. Is that the same way that scripture talks about it, Stephen? I was gonna say, sometimes there's a there's an element that you can't really know it. You can't really figure out. I mean, that that's why it's a mystery. It's inscrutably just kind of guessing. Yeah. Sometimes, right? So sometimes it's like a puzzle, right? You just got to put it together and then you figure it out. But sometimes it, it remains unknown. And I think um, you want to move into a deeper understanding of what mystery is when we're looking at how scripture, especially the New Testament, talks about it. Um, rather than being something that you just got to figure out the codes or put the pieces together and, and figure it out, a mystery is something that's just infinitely knowable, right? You can always go deeper in and, and you can come to understand things, but then you realize, oh, there's even more to it, right? I mean, think about just the nature of who God is. Uh, of course, we feel like we should be able to say something about God. That's kind of my job, but I'm never going to be able to say everything about God, right? It's, there's, there's always more we can go deeper in. And so I think that's um, sort of what we're seeing here. And it is centered on Jesus, right? Um, a couple passages that talk about this are like Ephesians 3, 8 to 12, or Colossians 1, 25 to 27, where there's a sense of which the mystery of what God has always been, been aiming towards is fulfilled in Christ, and yet uh, there's still, it's still unfolding. It's this kind of already but not yet, right? The prophets were looking ahead, and, and they saw glimpses of it, um, but, uh, and so, you know, for the, the early Christians, they, they did feel like now we've better understand than, than ever before what God is up to. But even now, 2,000 years later, we're, we're still waiting. We're still figuring things out. Um, it, it, it's, it's Christ's death and resurrection starts this new age, uh, but 
we're still waiting for it to unfold completely, right? We haven't gotten to the end. So as much as we understand now, there's there's still more to, to understand. So that's that's the mystery, right? But the idea that now that the scroll is being opened, we are seeing a, a deeper aspect of it than before. All right, let's uh, finish the rest of this chapter eight to 11. We'll see what uh, John does with this scroll. Then the voice that I heard at herds from heaven spoke to me again, saying, go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat. It will be bitter in your stomach, but sweet as honey in your mouth. So I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Then they said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and people. So uh, this image of eating the scroll, uh, again, <laughs> seems, seems kind of strange, but it actually has uh, history in, in scripture. Uh, this idea, you know, it's the idea of taking it in, right? Even the verse that Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, uh, we don't live by bread alone, but on the word of God. So here it's literally uh, living off of, of God's word. Uh, Ezekiel, too, is, is a place in the Old Testament where you see this image. That's kind of Ezekiel's calling. He's, he's told to eat a scroll um, and, and saying that it's the same idea, right, of these words are going into you and you're going to then be able to prophesy because of that. Uh, the difference there is that in Ezekiel, it was, uh, it was just sweet, uh, if I recall. Um, and the words there are, are only judgment against, uh, that's what follows right after that is just, here's what's going to happen to all, uh, all these people. And so it, it's picking up on that image, but it's also doing something a little different because it's, it's sweet, but it's, it's also bitter, right? Bittersweet. Um, so if we're thinking about this scroll as somehow representing the, the way of Jesus uh, or God's um, final word through Christ, um, what is it about the way of Jesus that you could describe as both uh, sweet at first, but then uh, there's also some aspects of it that are less desirable? Maybe even a little bitter. Anything come to mind when you talk think about the gospel that way? But the one thing that jumps out at me is that Jesus, there are all these good, awesome messages uh, affirming life. And yes, things are going to be good. And I'm going to make things right. And I love you. And God loves you. And then you look around and it's, but he's not going to do it the way I want to, you know. <laughs> yeah. and, it's not just me or it's everybody it has that exact same experience, you know, well, Jesus, why don't you do it this? Well, I wanted this. And he says, no, I, you know, I'm not here to be arbiter between you and your brother's inheritance. I'm not here to, uh, he's not our trained monkey. He's going to do it his way. And we just have to trust him. And that man, that's hard sometimes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. God is, Jesus is still going to be Lord. Um, and that means we don't always get what we want. What else, what else is bittersweet about, the way of Jesus. What's something that's sweet? What's something that's bitter? Uh, you can pick one or the other, maybe. Well, I, I mean, I think he's, you know, made it plain that um, he wants to be the thing, right? The one thing. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, he said, you have to hate your mother and your brothers, right? Compared to mm -hmm. what you're so there is um, definitely maybe a sadness or melancholy, at least, in the leaving of 
self, I guess, or, you know, self-interest for the purpose of following Jesus to places that, as Stephen kind of said, are not always that exciting. Mm -hmm. In fact, frightening and terrifying. (laughs) Sometimes. Yeah. And the order of this is, I think, uh, in line with Jesus, too, because it tastes really sweet in our mouth, but it gets bitter. And we, we kind of, you know, we, we want the salvation. We want the forgiveness. We want those wonderful, sweet things. And then, as Stephen said, but when you start following Jesus, it it's bitter. Mm, <laughs> sometimes it's, it's a long haul, right? I, I mean, you think back to when you first became a, uh, you got baptized or became a Christian, everything was exciting and it's also new and it's great. And then you know, decades in, like, oh, okay, still doing this. And, and you know, again, we're not saying that there's never any, anything good after, huh. after the initial moment, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it, this faith is a marathon, not a sprint. Mm-hmm. That's something I've heard. And I know I've probably said before, uh, I mean, to me, it goes to what we've been preaching about and been talking about uh, the past several weeks about the way of the cross, right? Uh, take up your cross and follow me and deny yourself. Well, that doesn't sound very sweet. Uh, that sounds kind of rough. And, um, and yet, you know, he still also says my yoke is easy. My burden is light, right? You're going to carry some burden and the cross is actually in some ways making your life a lot easier and sweeter, but it's discipleship has a cost, right? Jesus himself says, don't, don't follow me unless you are willing to go through this, count the cost. And so uh, that, that to me is what I hear in this. Of, um, it's not just always rainbows and sunshine uh, following Jesus. There, there are incalculable blessings, but um, we're also called to join him in a way that, that involves suffering and taking up the suffering of the world just like he did. And so we, just, we all hold those together, right? Um, there may be moments when it all feels bitter, so find the sweetness. And there may be moments when we just want to focus on the sweetness and just know that's not all there is, right? Sometimes, you know, you can find people that are preaching a gospel that is pretty much all sweetness. Just, you know, come to Jesus and all the bitterness will go away and you'll have everything you ever wanted. Um, uh, <laughs> that wasn't Jesus' own life. So I don't think that should be our expectation either. Uh, so um, now he's called you know, after he's eaten it. It's it's now you're going to prophesy to uh, all these peoples and nations, uh, and it may be saying prophesy against them uh, in some way. Uh, that's that's kind of what we'll see in the next chapter. But it's taking this mystery that's been opened through Christ. Uh, now that message can go into all the world. So we're getting we'll get a couple images in chapter eleven. Of, of how that happens. Any, any last thoughts there? Anything else? You know, I've heard that <clears throat> one of the things that happening with John, you know, is that you're taking in this wonderful, sweet news that God is going to make everything right, but you got to go tell people it ain't going to be very good for them, <laughs> you know? And, and so, so that's really pretty bitter, you know, mm-hmm. to think about um, just, just if you, just like you said, Chris, standing up and saying, hey, not everything goes the way that we want it to go, like Stephen said, that can be pretty tough to hear. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, the way you know. that God makes everything right, some people aren't going to like that because they like the way that the world is right now. Right? Right. And you see that so much in the Gospels of people, even before Jesus is born, saying he's going to you know, flip everything upside down. Well, if you're already on the top <laughs> of an unjust system, well, justice is not going to be that pleasant to you, right? So, yeah, I think that's, 
um, having to take this message to the world, not everybody in the world is going to want to hear it. And yeah, that's actually one of the things we'll see in, in this next chapter as well. So let's get into that. Uh, so we're going to read about the two witnesses and the temple here at the beginning of chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, come and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it's given over to the nations, and they will trample over the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days wearing sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Anyone wants to harm them must, must be killed in this manner. They have authority to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Okay, so... Uh, Another interesting symbol here, or actually a couple, right? So first we have this image of, of the temple. Uh, now, later in the same chapter, verse 19, it'll talk about God's temple in heaven. So it seems like this is something on earth, whatever the temple represents. Um, but it, it's not necessarily just the literal Jerusalem temple. Um, if, as I assume, and, and many commentators assume, Revelation is written in the mid-90s of the first century, uh, the Jerusalem temple had already been destroyed. I don't think there's many at all that think that this would have been written before that happened in, in AD 70. Um, so that's that's an, a clue that, right, it's not talking about the literal temple there. Although, of course, this is what uh, the Jewish Christians that John is, uh, a lot of whom John is writing to, would they would think of the Jerusalem temple at first. Um, but I think as uh, looking at images through the New Testament, uh, we see that the church and Jesus' body are often referred to as the temple, right? First uh, Corinthians three is is the well the well known one, right? We're uh, God's temple. Uh, it's in First Corinthians a couple times. Uh, John two talks about Jesus as the temple, and then you know we are in Christ. So uh, I think this is more of an image of the church, right? This this temple here. Um, but again, it's, it's a symbol. It's not a code. And as we talked about at the very beginning, symbols don't just have like a one-to-one -one kind of meaning. Um, it, it's picking up more than one thing. Uh, but I think we should uh, see this as some way referring to, to the church. And so uh, he's told to measure the temple. Uh, measuring is a sign of, of protection, uh, kind of like sealing uh, when the seal was placed on, on the the faithful witnesses earlier on um, because again does God not know how big this this temple is you would think God already knows so it, it must mean more than that uh, and you see that as well in in the prophets uh, Zechariah 2 and Ezekiel 40 to 42 do a, a similar thing of measuring the temple uh, there it's separating the holy from the common and you see a little bit of that there right measure the temple but the courtyard that's for the nations um, they kind of have their space so we're we'll, that's where they can do their thing but god's people there's protection over them um but again this this idea of uh, the temple right and and their mindset we we don't have temples today so that doesn't really mean as much to us it's it's way more to them than like a church building is right the, the temple was the place where heaven and earth meet and god in a very particular sense was present 
uh, even though God, they, they knew God wasn't limited to that space. Uh, God is, is there in a, in a unique way. And so the story of Revelation is heading towards the new Jerusalem, uh, where God is fully present, right? The, you don't need a temple because God is, is everywhere, fully with humanity. But that's not to say that God is absent now, right? So the sign of, of this current temple, God is still with us. Uh, and we're waiting for the day when God is fully present. So for now, in the meantime, the church is persecuted, but still worships, right? So you see they're, they're trampling, the, the nations are trampling, um, but um, it's, they're also, uh, the, the people are able to worship, and it, but it's for a limited time, right, that they're able to uh, persecute the church. So that's where uh, you get some weird numbers and dates here. It talks about 42 months, and then it mentions 1,260 days. Um, if you break that down, that equals three and a half years, which would be half of seven, right? Seven represents completeness, half of seven represents incompleteness. Uh, just like six can also be just a little off, right? So that's, again, that's the way that numbers work in, in this book. It's, uh, don't take that as, you know, again, because there've been plenty of people that say, okay, we've got a countdown of 42 months that something bad is gonna be happening. Uh, no, it's saying this is a way of indicating this is temporary. This is um, uh, partial. What what go, what we're going through here, and as we're uh, the church that's protected and worshiping, but also suffering in other ways. Then we get the image of these two witnesses, right? Uh, which again could some take as two specific uh, people who will rise up, prophets that'll be ordained by God with uh, special powers, but. I think more likely it's another image or reference to the church, um, that the, the church are God's witnesses. In fact, John has used the, the term witness multiple times already, right? That's that it's, uh, who follows Jesus. Jesus himself is called uh, the faithful witness. Um, again, the word witness in Greek is literally the word martyr. Um, so it's those that uh, sometimes are willing to even die for their faithfulness to God. Uh, lampstands, which uh, is mentioned, he just uses that term for these witnesses. That's already been an image applied to the church. Go back to chapters two and three. So I think that gives uh, us a good idea. That this is what uh, this is meant to represent. But then why is it two, right? Why isn't it just the faithful witness? Well, the, a few reasons for that. Um, in the Old Testament and um, even in, in Jesus' teaching about the church, you need two witnesses to have a valid testimony. Um, or just the idea of two together could be like Moses and Aaron, uh, Elijah and Elisha, or just Moses and Elijah, because they're kind of the two, the two biggies, right? That's who shows up with Jesus in the transfiguration. Uh, and they also had the, the kind of powers uh, that it describes uh, the witnesses having here. And, and then even Jesus in his ministry, he sent the disciples out in pairs. Uh, if you go to Luke chapter 10. So all that uh, to say, this uh, the witnesses, just like the temple, is is a way of talking about the church and and our role uh, and and what we do during this time as we're awaiting uh, the end. Um, so it, it does talk about uh, the thing, the things that the witnesses, the church, uh, can do, which is uh, pouring fire out from their mouth. Um, shutting up the sky, all these kind of crazy things. 
Uh, now, I have not seen many churches be able to do <laughs> those exact literal kinds of things. So uh, what do you think this is, is pointing at? In what way does the church bring fire in the earth uh, to the world, ideally? I mean, I think about prayer and, you know, Elijah was a man just like us and he prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't, right? He called mm -hmm. down fire from heaven. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe by prayer. Okay, so yeah, we, we have access to God, uh, especially through the Holy Spirit, um, that we can ask God for things and, and they'll happen, right? Maybe not, maybe not literally fire coming from heaven, uh, like Elijah did, um, right? And, and that makes me think of, you know, when uh, James and John, they asked Jesus to do that, right? And Jesus says, no, that's not, that's not how we do things now uh, when they're rejected by the Samaritans. So yeah, maybe not literal fire, but, but prayer and our ability to communicate with God and um, have God act. Maybe it's pointing towards that. I mean, what do we mean when we say somebody's, man, you're really bringing the fire at that time? What was I usually talking about? I'm not sure. I don't get that much for description <laughs> of my preaching, old. but we, we don't know. That? Yeah. I think we're too old to know that. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I think you're, you're going for the idea, right, that we kind of convict people in their hearts, right? Sometimes with what we say, it may... Like uh, what's there's the line that Jesus says when you know, when you're brought before the authorities and something don't worry about what to say the Holy Spirit's mm -hmm. going to basically tell you what to say at the time and maybe is that what you're going for the idea that you know, what we say some people might not want to hear it and it might kind of sting when they hear it yeah it, it, but it has power right and and again if we're looking at Jesus and his example it's not destructive power uh, ideally not to to just hurt people, but to convict them, right? And, and sometimes those, you know, when you tell people things that they don't want to hear, when we call out and say, this is not the way that, that the world should be and the way that things should operate, um, people don't want to hear that. And so that's, that's maybe a fiery message. Now, again, I don't think, again, this gets interpreted lots of different ways in terms of, you know, falling down hellfire and brimstone. I don't know if that's what's, uh, being uh, thought of here but you know it's this word of judgment and um you know you don't you can't just hold that in when we see that things are not the way they're meant to be and we have a a, a witness um we got to be willing to challenge those earthly powers with it um jesus did that in his way and and so we're called to imitate that um because we have a different lord and um i mean that early Christians, these Christians that this was written to, they got in trouble for proclaiming that um, and calling out the idolatry and um, other things that were going on in the empire. And so that's that's how I hear this, is, is pointing towards that prophetic witness that all the church has um, to, to speak that word of truth, uh, but again, aim towards repentance and, and change, not just punishment. Although... <laughs> Uh, it may it may go that way sometimes. 
All right, uh, let's get to uh, the rest of this. So what happens when God's witnesses speak out and uh, have a powerful word against the powers that be? It doesn't go well, um, in a sense, at least at first. So picking up in verse 7. Uh, when they, the witnesses, have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is prophetically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, members of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze on their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to the inhabitants of the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and those who saw them were terrified. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second what was past, the third what was coming soon. So here we get the first reference to the beast. Uh, he's going to be a major character. Uh, and really, there's uh, a lot more about the beast in uh, chapters 12 to 14. So we'll see that uh, some next time uh, before we get to the final series of, of seven, the seven bulls. And he comes out of this bottomless pit that was mentioned back uh, in chapter nine. Uh, but more on, on the beast next time. <laughs> and, but what we see is what does the beast do? He, uh, he kills the faithful witnesses, right? Death is sometimes the fate for those who are faithful, um, right? Like I said, the word martyr uh, comes from this idea of being a witness. Uh, before, before Christians, martyr didn't have the idea of dying for something. It just meant, meant witness. Uh, but they're being faithful in the sense that they're dying for uh, their enemies rather than just killing all of their enemies. Uh, and so, again, the way I understand this is it's, it's pointing to the ways in which the world uh, rejects the message of the church. And, um, you know, especially in their day and still around the world in certain places, uh, Christians do lose their life for, for being true to their their witness, right, for standing for, for God, and sometimes for calling out things like injustice. Um, so if it's talking about the ways in which the, the church sometimes gets gets killed or, or seems like it's dying, um, I don't know, is that, is that something that we see today? In what sense is the church dying, and and is it because we're standing up to the world, or is it other things that seem to kill us. I think it can be both, right? Uh, I think the bigger danger, and maybe this is something Jesus was getting at in, in the message at the very beginning, is um, don't kill yourselves, right? Uh, sometimes churches die because of their own apathy, or because they give in to um, idolatry and, and these other things. Um, so often that's at least, especially in our, in our time, in our place, that's the more pressing concern. Uh, not that the church is losing its voice because it is really preaching the, uh, the message of Jesus, but because we're not really <laughs> preaching that message. And so we lose our vitality. Uh, so that's, but it's something that happens, right? Uh, there's resistance. Uh, if we're really preaching the, um, 
the self-sacrificial, inclusive love of Christ, um, a lot of people aren't going to like that message. Uh, it may, we may find people that uh, surprise us with who that connects with, but um, shouldn't be surprised that that some are going to going to reject that. Uh, so then he talks about this, the, the great city where this is happening, right? And again, you can tell, obviously, this can't be literal because it's uh, Sodom and it's Egypt and it's where the Lord was crucified, uh, which Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, right? So it's more about what do these, these cities represent? Uh, and again, the idea of a great city is going to come up more uh, in the next chapters as we really focus on what are the evil powers that are working against the church, um, so, right, Jerusalem, well, that's where Jesus died, right? So the, the people there in some ways are responsible for his death. And um, you can go to the prophets uh, back when they were prophesying against Jerusalem and Judah. And sometimes they would call it Sodom. Uh, Isaiah chapter one, he does that same sort of thing. Uh, later, this great city will be called Babylon, uh, one of the other ancient evil empires. Uh, and so all of them together, Sodom, Egypt, Babylon, uh, Jerusalem, when it was giving in to its worst impulses, uh, they're all images of rebellion and idolatry and oppression. And so that's, uh, if, if we're being faithful witnesses in that sort of place, uh, expect some resistance. So they're killed, but eventually these faithful witnesses are, are raised up. They're, they're resurrected. Uh, so that's in verse 11, right? The, the breath of life comes into them. Again, it mentions three and a half days. Uh, it's just the right again this half of seven so it's incompleteness uh, so this idea that there will be a time that we'll experience um, persecution and and death and loss but that's not the end of the story right that's what the three and a half points to and so eventually God raises them up it talks about the tenth of the city falling when that happens um, but a tenth in an apocalyptic thought that's a small number Usually in most apocalyptic literature, it's nine-tenths is destroyed. And so here where it's only one-tenth, uh, that's, that's actually subverting common apocalyptic language of God's going to destroy almost everything. And here it's, it's only partial. Um, right? Or even go to Isaiah or 1 Kings, it talks about times when only a tenth survive. So again, it's more about how it's inverting or subverting these typical images of, of destruction rather than trying to give us an exact number of, of how many are going to get killed in all of this. And here is where we see a big difference to the end um, from uh, chapter nine, right? After the, the trumpets and there's all this destruction and punishment, there there was no repentance. But here what happens um, when, when the inhabitants of the earth see the witnesses raised back up and ascend into heaven, uh, the, those who are still around, they give glory to God in heaven. So that shows that they do repent. They do change. Uh, punishment didn't lead to repentance, but witnessing self-sacrifice and witnessing the new life that can come from it, that does lead to people changing. And so that's, I think that's an important message for our witness today. Again, what do we think is going to have an impact on the world? It's not going to be if we just have, um, you know, try and take power and, and punish people and uh, bring that kind of judgment. 
But if we can speak the truth in love and don't give up even when it gets hard, um, that does speak powerfully. Right? Witnessing like Christ did, that leads to change in a way that just punishment doesn't. Um, people respond when they see that that new life. Um, so uh, what else what else do you hear in here about right, so if these are the faithful witnesses and this is our role, what does it look like for us to be witnesses today? How can we witness in our time and place? Well, it seems like a message of hope. I mean, you don't really have to be afraid of anything. You're going to come back from the dead. And so you just hang in there with Jesus and, and keep moving on. And, and to me, you know, that's what he's trying to get to him to say, hey, you know, you have this power. Nobody recognizes or, you know, uh, acknowledges your power, but that's not where it's at anyway. And so then if you if you are willing to die for this, the people somehow when God brings this to church it kind of reminds me of what jesus said that hades can't stop this so so we're in something that is never ever going to be stopped or, and 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 people will always be coming to god in that so it's pretty encouraging if you're going through really really tough times um you know that didn't really answer your question of how we witness no i, th I, th I think <laughs> but, but was, i think that is central to it right and i mean we're jumping ahead to easter here you know with resurrection but the idea is, right, well, if, if we don't have to be afraid of death, which is the main thing that the world can throw at us, well, what do we need to be afraid of, right? Um, that's what makes the resurrection a powerful idea and, you know, was really a threat to the empire at the time. These people aren't scared of death. Well, what can we do to them? And, I mean, the we, we know from history, the early church, um grew in times of horrible persecution um and so are we are we afraid what are we afraid of um when when we have so many things that we're afraid of losing uh, our life or maybe things like our our security our our influence our power our wealth um being afraid to lose those things can make it a lot harder to witness Right, and so when we realize all these things, that's not our power. Um, our power comes from the spirit of life, the breath of life. Um, then we don't have to be afraid, and we can we can speak the truth and um, know that God's going to make it right in the end. And again, we're two thousand years later. I wouldn't say the world has completely gotten better than it <laughs> like it should, but there are ways in which the church has through its witness over time, uh, had an impact on the world. And some things that, that we just take for granted now uh, about how much you should care for people that you don't know. Um, this is the influence of the witness of Christ, I think, going into the world and um, infiltrating, if you want to use that word, infecting. Uh, you know, it's, it's like what Jesus said, it's like yeast in the dough. Slowly but surely, it does spread. And... Um, when we're willing to, to die for this, um, that mean, that makes it powerful. Now, living in 21st century America, that's probably not the situation we're going to face, but we still have to think about what we're called to give up to be faithful witnesses um, for the sake of the world.